Okay, hi. Uh, my name is Katie Gardner. I'm the head of the anthropology department here at the LSE, and I'm going to be chairing this discussion of the book launch of Grand Dam by Growth, Tribe, Caste and Inequality in 21st Century India. Before we start, I've got some announcements to make. The first announcement is that there's going to be a Rag Week collection, which takes place after the lecture. And today's collection will be for Mind. Um, there's a, it says here, Description. Mind. Mind provides advice and support to empower anyone experiencing a mental health problem. We campaign to improve services, raise awareness, and promote understanding. So please do give generously to that. Um, Micro-announcement. I've got a very bad cold and a terrible cough. So if I start coughing very badly, I don't know what will happen, but please forgive me. Um, second announcement. So after the event, there's going to be a drink which is if you go outside here and then around the corner, it's just over there. And um, in the atrium is an exhibition which is directly linked to this project. It's called Behind the Indian Boom, Inequality and Resistance at the Heart of Economic Growth. So the exhibition highlights the findings of the book and is a result of the work of lots and lots of people associated with the project, the researchers, PhD students, and also journalists and activists who um, collaborated with those people involved in putting the exhibition together. So the, and the exhibition was curated by Simon Chambers, and originally it was shown at the Brunei Gallery at SOAS, so some of you may have seen it there. Um, it then moved to the LSE, um, particularly with the help of two of our PhD students who are linked to this project, um, Itai Noi and Meghna Mehta, who I think maybe I can't see if they're in high in the, in, the, in, the, in the back of the auditorium. So please, after um, we finish this event, please come and share a drink with us and also take a good look at the exhibition which is incredibly revealing and important. So I'm just going to say a couple of words about the book and then I'm going to introduce the speakers for the evening. Um, I've, I've read Grand Down by Growth. I've um, really enjoyed it or found it uh, incredibly revealing and important. It's uh, the result of a major five-year project which is funded by the ESRC and ERC, which interrogated the relationship between India's so-called economic miracle poverty and inequality via long-term ethnographic research in six site, in sites across India by the research team. What this research demonstrates, as we will hear, is not simply that inequality persists in spite of economic growth, but that this growth is predicated on inequality. Sometimes this is based on caste, on class, but often uh, uh, it builds on and exacerbating the hierarchies of caste and tribe, which, of course, feed into um, class as well. Rather than melting away in a modernized India, what the book powerfully shows is that caste oppression continues, though often in new forms. And as the ethnography also demonstrates, rather than becoming an unemployed surplus population, as seems to be happening elsewhere in the world, the poor in India seem to be working harder and harder than ever to survive. So we will obviously hear a lot more in a moment, and I don't want to hog the stage. But before I hand over to our uh, august panel, I want to make two points. 
Firstly, the book shares the power of ethnography to reveal situations and relationships which short-term work or quantitative methods miss. So, for example, it shows really what, how the mechanisms of 21st century debt bondage and how that builds upon historical forms of caste bondage or indeed the experiences of migrant laborers who, having traveled from distant districts to work on building sites or brick kilns, don't speak the language and simply aren't counted in official statistics. Second, the book demonstrates the insights to be gleaned from collaborative and comparative work across many sites. So this book has chapters in it um, which come from sustained field work in Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Telangana, Himachal Pradesh and Maharashtra with contributions from, I don't know if they're all here in the audience, whether everybody's here, but just to to name-check them, Richard Axelby, Dalal Banbabali, Brendan Donegal, um, J. Rajan Vikram Thakram, Thakur. This, this, and also a chapter by K.P. Kanan, which sets the work in a broader macroeconomic context. And, of course, introductory and concluding chapters by Al-Pashar and Lerche. So what results is a wealth of detailed material which, taken together, paints a vivid picture of what the authors call conjugated oppression, Oppression based on the interrelationship between caste, tribe, gender and class identities on which economic growth thrives. So this is a really important contribution to debates surrounding the nature of economic growth and 21st century capitalism. A stark and vivid rejoinder to those who celebrate growth and wealth accumulation without considering the hidden costs. So in a minute I'm going to hand over to the panel, but first of course I do need to introduce the panel. So first, um, we have Dr. Alpa Shah, who is, has been the PI on the project Poverty and Inequality in India and led from the LSE side. So Alpa is Associate Professor in the Anthropology Department. She's conducted long-term ethnographic fieldwork with Adivasis in East India and published widely on issues ranging from agrarian change, revolution in India and Nepal, emancipatory politics, economic growth in India, and Adivasi and Dalit political activism. Dr. Jens Lecce is reader in agrarian labor studies and development studies at SOAS, and he has led from the SOAS side of the project and jointly led it from there. He's published extensively on labor relations, caste, social mobilization, and agrarian transition in North India. And finally... Professor Philippe Bourgeois is Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Center for Social Medicine and Humanities in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California in Los Angeles. Philippe was the founding chair of the Department of Anthropology, Anthropology, History and Social Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco from 1998 to 2003 and was the Richard Perry University Professor at the University of Pennsylvania from 2007-16. So Philippe has conducted fieldwork in Central America as well as urban USA. Following his first book, which is called Ethnicity at Work, Divided Labor on a Central American Banana Plantation, which was published in 1986, he did fieldwork amongst drug dealers in East Harlem, um, leading to his award-winning ethnography, which I'm sure many of you have read and Um, I teach it, I have to say, and the students love it, Um, In Search of Respect, Selling Crack in El Barrio, which was published in 1996. This has been 
followed by numerous publications, including the 2015 co-edited book Violence at the Urban Margins and 2009 Righteous Dope Fiend. And you will be the discussant of the book following on from Alpa and um, Jens. So firstly, over to you, Alpa. Thank you, Katie. So um, thank you all for coming. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so much has been made of the boom um, that has been evolving in India, the, the economic boom. One of the world's fastest-growing economies, it's predicted that by the middle of the century, India will be one of the two largest alongside China, leaving the West far behind. Since the 1990s, uh, when India liberalized its economy and welcomed in foreign investment and corporations, encouraged national businesses, the country has seen growth rates that much of the world has marveled at. Construction, services, and other modern sectors have expanded. The urban middle class has uh, grown. Proponents of high growth rates claim that economic liberalization is also good for the poor, that eventually this growth is going to trickle down to everybody, uh, that even those uh, who are right at the bottom of the economic pile, it will be inclusive. You know, that's the World Bank um, lingo. But critics, perhaps the most famous of which is Thomas Piketty, have pointed out that growing inequality is one of the most significant political challenges of our time, that income inequality has dramatically escalated in the last 30 years in many parts of the world. Oxfam recently pointed out that the richest 1% now have more wealth than the rest of the world combined. India, which was once, to some extent, shielded by the market forces of global expansion, is now no longer an exception. Its growth story, as Amrit Sen and Jean Drez predicted four years ago, is an uncertain one. Today, India is home to 100 billionaires, ranking fourth on the dollar billionaire lists after the USA, Germany, and China. But it's also the case that around 58% of its population still lives below the international poverty line. In India, people have shifted out of agriculture, but not into good jobs. Decent jobs are few and far between. The overwhelming majority of Indian workers, that's 92% uh, of the workforce, work in informal employment. So that is that they have no formal rights, no security of employment, no welfare benefits, no medical benefits, no insurance, no pensions. They work in small-scale informal sector or on short-term contracts for formal sector enterprises as second-class laborers. These are workers trapped in low wages or in vulnerable self-employment. They have miserable work conditions, hired through labor contractors on zero-hours contracts, as we call it here, and can be fired at a moment's notice. Significantly, and what is perhaps less well-known, is that progressive economists working on India have shown us that there are some people, India's historically oppressed and discriminated Adivasi and Dalit communities, its tribal and previously untouchable groups, who all over the country remain worse off than all other groups. 
So, for instance, measurements of poverty amongst Adivasis and Dalits was more than 20% higher than the average poverty levels in India. So the circumstances of Adivasis and Dalits in India pose a huge challenge to the premise of neoclassical economists and planners who promised that this growth would trickle down to everyone. They challenge those who have said that all forms of hierarchies and inequalities, such as caste, would disappear in modern India. The circumstances of Dalits and Adivasis are also important for at 200 million people Dalits and 100 million people Adivasis, they make up 1 in 25 people in the world. In the past, the caste system kept Dalits as untouchable, as impure and a filthy class of save-like landless agricultural laborers. They were at the very bottom of the caste hierarchy, below the touchable or clean castes, their touch and even their shadows were seen as polluting. They were left to do only the hardest and most demeaning jobs and were treated as the higher castes saw fit. And though there was a tribe-caste continuum, as pointed out long ago by Frederick Bailey, the Adivasis of the hills and forests, in comparison to the Dalits, lived in relatively independent or autonomous communities with much more direct access to land and forest resources, without the same domination of higher caste groups that Dalits faced on a day-to-day -day basis, but they were stereotyped as wild, savage, and childlike. In the new economies, the circumstances of Adivasis and Dalits has changed somewhat, but how and through what processes? Economists with their macro data can be good at showing us general patterns. For instance, that Adivasis and Dalits are worse off than all other groups in India across the country. But it is anthropologists with their long-term field research, living with the people concerned, who could show what life is like for them, the processes that they were experiencing, and how things are changing or remaining the same. To understand the situation of Adivasis and Dalits in India, we need to complement economic data by a grassroots approach to the changing processes of inequality and how they're experienced and negotiated by people on the ground. So between 1999 and 2010, I spent four and a half years living as a social anthropologist with Adivasis in the forests and hills of, East, of the eastern Indian state of Jharkhand. The first spell of two years was with the Munda tribe people. The second spell was with the Uran tribe people living in one of the two main strongholds of the Maoist-inspired Naxalite guerrilla insurgency and who many Adivasis across Central and Eastern India were joining. My stays in Jharkhand were when India was presented to the world as shining. <laughs> but this rosy picture was very different to the world I lived in and experienced in the jungles of Eastern India. What I was observing was that not only was a trickle-down of growth not reaching the Adivasis, but actually what, they, what little they had to live off, which enabled their rich ways of lives and cultures, their forests and lands, was being taken away from them by multinational corporations and big business, often forcefully supported by the state in the name of development that would benefit others. Some of India's greatest mineral reserves lay under the Adivasi forests and hills, and national and multinational businesses were waiting to get their hands on it at any cost to the people who inhabited those lands, most recently with fierce and brutal counterinsurgency operations. 
it seemed that the Adivasis would end up becoming poor scavengers who lived off whatever they could find on the fringes of this development, as had already happened to many groups, like the Irulas, who literally scavenge off rubbish heaps in Tamil Nadu, who Barbara Harris-White, who, who worked as a part of our broader research program, focused on. Or the hoes who scour the iron slag heaps of Tatanagar uh, for any discarded iron ore, as shown by this photograph taken by Ajay Tiji, the research assistant who for years has worked with Professor Jonathan Parry, emeritus pro professor in our department here. While some might end up becoming co-opted by the mining companies and the state, the rest would end up trying to eke out a living on the fringes of this development. These were communities who once owned the land and the resources around them, but big business and powerful corporations together with the state, whether it was Tata Steel or Coal India, had reduced them into paupers. So as I studied the figures the progressive economists were producing, I realized that it was not just in Jharkhand, but across the entire country that Adivasis and Dalits fared much worse than all other groups. They remained at the bottom of the Indian social and economic hierarchy. And this was despite all the measures that the Indian state had taken for affirmative action to help them and that were inscribed in the Indian constitution. So it seemed important to understand the processes of inequality that were behind the figures the economists were presenting from the perspectives and experiences of Adivasis and Dalits across the country. So I designed a significant program of research on inequality and poverty, which is now based here in the Department of Anthropology at LSE, to explore these issues, and was very lucky to be awarded two major research grants from the UK ESRC and the European Research Council starting grant to carry out this work. There were a huge team of people involved, including as co-investigators, the field economist Barbara Harris-White and Jonathan Parry, who's, who's, um, who's, that, that, that photo is from some of his work here in our department, uh, who has worked for the last 30 years in the steel city of Bilai in Chhattisgarh. There was also Clarinda Still, who has worked on Dalit women. We worked closely with Indian economists who had produced some of the national statistics of, of, on poverty and inequality in India. And I asked Jens Lerker from the Development Studies Department at SOAS to lead the program with me. And I'm going to hand over to Jens soon to tell you something about our overall findings. But before that, let me explain something about the research that we carried out. So we recruited five postdoctoral researchers who went on to live with Adivasi and Dalit communities in different parts of the country over at least a year in each state to understand their lives and communities and the wider processes that affect them. In a collaborative program of research, which is unusual for anthropology, a discipline which usually promotes the investigations of the lone researcher, across every site we asked the same main question, how and why do Adivasis and Dalits remain at the bottom of the Indian economic and social hierarchy? And though this question was explored differently in, di in different sites, we also had a series of common methods which we tried to deploy across the sites, we met up throughout the course of fieldwork to compare notes and think across sites. Jens and I visited all the sites and worked closely with every researcher, and the postdoctoral researchers visit, each visited one other site. After the fieldwork phase was over, we had a series of intensive workshops to analyze our data across sites and to write together. So I want to turn to some of the sites. So um, these are the five uh, field sites. So we'll start um, here in the... 
in, in, the, in the tea belts of the Western Ghats. And this was a place where Jayasilan Raj uh, worked. And here, historically, Tamil Dalits from, Dalits from Tamil, the state of Tamil Nadu, was taken as indentured labor to plant tea for the British colonial tea planters. They gained some basic um, labor security over the years, but with the crisis in the tea economy from the 1980s, but especially the 1990s, the local businesses who took over used the moment to reduce all their security, and, and they eventually brought in a much cheaper workforce from Jharkhand, from eastern India, of Adivasis to undercut the, the power of these local Dalits. Now, the Dalit women resisted um, in a remarkable show of strength, but the overall trend has been to replace <coughs> these Dalit workers uh, with a much, more cheaper, what, much cheaper and more vulnerable workforce. Let's turn to um, the site of Brendan Donakan here in, in the coastal belt of Tamil Nadu where in the 1980s chemical industries were uh, encouraged across the... Uh, all down, all, down the, all down the coast. Uh, and these was on the, this was on the doorstep of historical um, dominant caste villages which had a lot of Dalits who were initially bonded slaves to the, to the, to the higher caste landlords. Um, with the new factories, what was interesting is that it was the high ca higher castes who got all the good, jo good jobs and the Dalits who were reduced to the precarious wage labor and dirty and dangerous work, such as cleaning bones to make which is what happened in the, in the field site of Brendan Donegan. And here, too, we find that when the Dalits try to go on strike, it is a workforce from central and eastern India, much poorer regions, who are brought in to undercut the power of the local Dalit labor who try to fight back against their situation. Let's turn to the, the site of... So that's, yeah, these, that's the chemical factories in, in Kudalo district in Tamil Nadu. Let's turn now to um, Telangana here in, 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 in what is usually called central India uh, on the borders of Chhattisgarh, where, which is an area that was supposed to be protected for Adivasi people who dominated the area. So it had special laws to protect their land for them. But it saw uh, the arrival of uh, high caste from coastal um, uh, Andhra Pradesh who then took over the land of the Adivasis. And then when the factories were built in this area and mining developed, uh, in this particular site there's a paper factory. Uh, of course you find that it was the, the, the Kamas and the Reddies who are the high castes who got the best jobs in the factories and the Dalits who were reduced to working as precarious wage labor alongside the Adivasis in dirty and dangerous works uh, um, uh, in, in, the, in these factories. Um, okay, let's go to the site of Vikramditya Thakur who, um, who is working here in, in, in the hills and plains of the Narmada River. So this is the place, again, was dominated by the hill Peel tribes, uh, where there was a big um, dam project to block the Narmada River for the benefits of farmers, uh, middle-caste mid middle um, uh, dominant farmers in Gujarat. 
And Vikram Thakur looked at how this dam submerged all these Adivasi villages and how they were resettled in the plains uh, and how many of the people who were in the hills were, were turned into seasonal casual labor migrants um, and the ones who, who were resettled in the plains turned into, uh, to turn into planting cotton and, 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 and got engaged in new debt relations. Um, uh, so that's the, that's the site. So, so that's the, these are sugarcane fields where you see the migrant fields have become migrant workers on these sugarcane um, uh, plantations, and those are their kind of living conditions from what used to be the case, which was up in the, uh, up in the hills. And then let's turn to the Himalayas, where um, Richard Axelby worked, um, where, again, we have Gadi and Guja shepherds. The, the Gaji, Gadis were actually Muslims, and they are um, both considered uh, scheduled tribes, or Adivasis, who are worse off than the upper castes across the sites. And here, as they lose their shepherding living, living they've also become reduced to working in precarious, um, low-paid uh, wage uh, labor. So yeah, I don't have time to deal into all the details of each site. They're, they're, they've got wonderful chapters in each of uh, each of these sites have wonderful chapters in, in the in the book um, written by each of the postdoctoral researchers. So the four years later, uh, as after we initiated this work, we've we've produced Ground Down by Growth, um, which we have presented as co-authored by all the researchers and Jens and I, and there's also a chapter by K.P. Cannon on the macroeconomic data um, uh, that he, he was one of the economists that was involved in producing the original data on the differences between Dalit Sadivasis and other groups in India. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Jens to highlight uh, actually some of the key processes that emerge across all these sites that we see as significant uh, across the country and which we also think are significant to think about across the globe in relation to the spread of capitalism and the processes of inequalities which are generated therein. So again, it's over to you. Thanks, Alpa. Um, I'm a scholar of <coughs> agrarian change and rural labor. Since the 1990s, I've lived and worked in villages in, in coastal Orissa in India and Uttar Pradesh in India for altogether two years. I've studied Dalit rural laborers, Dalit struggles against the higher caste landowners, and Dalit movements. I've been in charge of work on uh, poor rural migrant labor working in, in Delhi in construction and garment, and I've studied how labor relations and social oppressions of Dalits in parts of North India have developed over the past 25 years. So when Alpa Shah Alpa invited me to join the program of, of research on, on inequality and poverty, <coughs> I was more than happy to do so. Now let me uh, turn to some of the key findings as presented in, in ground, uh, ground Down by Growth. <clears throat> the oppression of Dalits and Adivasis has continued over time and persists in new forms in the new economies. Our research shows that when compared with the neighboring upper caste households, whether it, it is the upper caste Hindus of the Himalayans or the Gujars of the Maharashtra Plains, the Nadas of Kotalo in Tamil Nadu or the Kamas and Redis in Telangana, everywhere it is 
devices and that is who do the hard on the paid and unregulated work. Indian and global business use existing social differences based on caste and tribe and entrench further the divide between Adivasis and Dalits and all other social groups. So. Though Dalits no longer work only for landed castes in the villages, they have become um, apart from Adivasis, the cheapest uh, labor of the economic boom at the bottom of all the labor hierarchies. Adivasis have perhaps lost even more. Though their lands have been encroached on uh, by people from, from, the, from the plains for centuries, they were given land rights by the Constitution after independence. But under the economic boom, land grabs have intensified by state dam pr projects, multinational and national mining companies, um, and by other non-tribal private companies aided and, uh, and abetted by the governments. This is dramatically undermining their <coughs> local forest-based and agricultural livelihoods and forces many of them to find precarious work in the wider economy, migrating seasonally to distant locations for six to eight months of the, of the year or even more. Our detailed fieldwork documents that contrary to common beliefs, uh, global capitalism does not erase social differences. It harnesses these differences and change them to fit the need of capital. In fact, this has also been shown by others across the globe regarding race, gender, and ethnicity-based social oppressions. For example, Stuart Hall has analyzed these processes, as has Philip Bourgois in relation to, among other places, Central American plantation. And uh, W.E.B. Dubois has done so re regarding race, class, and capitalism in the U.S. South after the, the American Civil War Etienne Balibar has theorized it in relation to capitalism and race in general, while Silvia Federici has shown how the historic subordination of men under capital during early capitalism, i.e. primitive accumulation, was linked to and made possible by the simultaneous subordination of women under both capital and under men. Going back to India, our book shows that Indian and global business entrenched the divide between Adivasis and, and Dalits and all other social groups. We argue that we need to understand how social uh, oppression is part of the spread of capitalism and how it in, intricately and, and, and how it is intricately tied to the labor and class relations that it produces. That is, how class relations and social oppression along the lines of caste and tribe are co-constituted by the processes of capital accumulation. More specifically, we argue that Dalits and Adivasis are oppressed and exploited in the modern economy through three interrelated processes. First, we have uh, historical inherited <coughs> inequalities of power. Old dominant social groups still control how Adivasis and Dalits are integrated uh, into uh, the modern economy and maintain them at their historical uh, position at the bottom of social and economic hierarchies. In all our field sites, Dalits and Adivasis have much less access to land and education than other so social groups. And even with the same level of education, other social groups get the best jobs. This is the case across India there. Uh, statistical data showing this for, for all India. Now, um, the higher castes sit 
uh, on the top positions in the modern non-agricultural economy, and they're close to the groups that, uh, that dominated village life. In Tamil Nadu, the export-oriented gelatine factory that Alpa mentioned before, which is a joint venture with Japanese capital, is run by executive from the Nada caste. The local ex-landlord, also Nadas, control the local Dalit informal workforce for them. In Telangana, where this slide is from, uh, the huge paper f factory with several thousand employees is in cahoots with the dominant local uh, ex-landlord who owns this house, uh, who dole out the precarious work at the factory to those Dalits and, and Adivasi groups that he considers docile. In Chamba, in the Himalayans, the Gadi and Guja Adivasi herdsmen have no access to city-based occupation. It is the same uh, for uh, the Adivasi Bill petty landowners who got res resettled as they were evicted by the building of the Namada Dam. Here it is the local Guja farmers that uh, monopolized the good jobs. In Kerala, the Tamil Nadu plantation workers were, as already said, brought in as indentured labor from Tamil Nadu. Now, as they have to find work outside of the plantations, they find themselves excluded from semi-skilled jobs. The economy, the, the economy has, has globalized, but the old power relations have become an integral part of the capitalist class and caste relations, and therefore still matters for who gets what job and who earns what. The second process is the harsh exploitation of Dalits and Adivasis as circular migrant labor within the Indian economy. And here we, we have, this is a slide from in East UP, where we have a, a, um, a, a, a migrant laborers uh, from Central India working as, as brick kiln workers. Across India, most rural households now undertake seasonal labor migration, going off for months or more to work wherever uh, that there's work to be found in India. Government data suggests that each year up to 140 million people work as such circular migrant labor, or wage hunters and gatherers, to use Jan Bremen's term, who hold on to whatever little land or housing they may have in rural areas while migrating seasonally. This means that practically all rural households are affected. Uh, Claude Meyersou, in the context of Southern Africa, pointed out the division between local workers uh, reproducing themselves entirely within the capitalist, within capitalist industries and a rural circular migrant labor force which only partly reproduces itself in this way. Meyersou explained that capital cheats labor from the countryside to far below the cost of the local workers through lower pay and worse terms and conditions of work as well as through relying on the cost of their reproduction to be dealt with back home in the villages. <coughs> we use the term super-exploitation to describe this process, uh, just as Ben Selvin does actually. Uh, um, this is a process which, that is uh, underway in, in India today. Mayor Su argued that this overall process is reinforced by discrimination against the migrant labor, including racism, which makes it difficult for them to put forward demands, demonstrate publicly, or ally with local workers. Globally, exploitation and oppression of, inter of international migrant workers in places such as Europe and North America are a central part of labor exploitation. Etienne Balibar has argued that migration are racially constructed, that migrants are racially constructed as the dangerous classes, bereft of the rights and, and positions of the rest of the working class. Others 
For example, F Ferguson and, and, and McNally have focused on how gender and social reproduction as well as race are central to the, their, their oppression and exploitation. In contrast to this, the oppression of migrant labor in India is not a product of external immigration, but of what Nate Roberts called internal alienness based on low caste, tribe, and region-related status. In India, our research confirmed that migrant workers are extremely vulnerable and precarious. Their wages are below what is required for, for their social re reproduction, and in many sectors, they are becoming the new normal. They are treated as second-class citizens. They have no access to the subsidized food from government fair price shops that serves the locals, and no access to schools for their children. They have no local vo voting rights, and they often do not speak the local language, which makes it even more difficult to be heard. Their living conditions are often appalling. In the, in the uh, Tamil Nadu uh, village that we studied, 30 workers lived under one roof where they slept in, in shifts. They are made to work harder than the local workers, and they are often paid less. And this makes the overall labor force resolutely insecure and super exploitable. Local labor and migrants are often pitched against each other. For example, the, uh, the factory management in the uh, Tamil Nadu industrial area brought in migrant labor, laborers to, to break a local strike. Meanwhile, back home, their families hang on to what little they've got and hope for the migrant labor to bring home <coughs> at least something when he or she returns. Adivasis and Dalits are overwhelmingly represented among the seasonal migrants, especially in sectors with the worst, work, uh, with the worst working conditions, such as brick kilns, the construction sector, agricultural labor, and low-end low informalized factory work. In most of our sites, Adivasis from central and eastern India dominates among the circular migrant workers. They work all across India, from Kerala plantations uh, and, and Tamil Nadu factories in the south to the high Himalayas where they build roads. Wherever they work, they find themselves at the bottom of the labor hierarchy, even below local Dalits. These social differences between labor, even at the bottom of the labor hierarchy, is used to undercut the labor power of the overall workforce. So if Dalit workers go on strike, as they did in the Kerala plantation, it is uh, Adivasis from Jharkhand who are brought in to replace them and undermine their, their protests. This takes us on to the third of the three interrelated processes that we argue are central to the oppression and exploitation of Dalits and Adivasis in the modern economy, that of conjugated oppression. Um, the, the power relations and, and exploitative processes that we have outlined so far, we argue, are underpinned by social oppression. By this we mean that Adivasis and Dalits suffer long-lasting, unjust, sometimes even cruel treatment in the hands of powerful groups based on their identity of Adivasis and Dalits uh, and also as outsiders from other regions uh, of India. Uh, together with their material conditions, uh, this produces a heady cocktail of, of oppression and, ex and exploitation. What we have here is from a village in, in, in East UP. Um, this uh, lovely boy uh, is the son of, of, of a, a high-caste family estate. Well, next to, uh, to, to that, we have uh, um, low-caste Musahat children who this boy and his family simply do not care about and cannot relate to. And if they think of them, they think of them uh, as, as uh, in derogative terms. After all, the term musaha means rat eaters. That is what they looked upon as not real, not real, proper human beings. 
Inspired by the work of Philippe Bourgois, we termed the multiple forms of, of oppression that is simultaneously at work here as, as conjugated oppression. We do so because of his insight that ethnic discrimination and class discrimination interacts explosively to produce an overwhelming experience of oppression that is more than the sum of, of, of the parts. Bourgois coined the concept first in relation to his analysis of different ethnic groups of workers on banana, banana plantations uh, spanning the borders of Costa Rica and, and Panama. He used it to characterize and explain the different kinds of oppression they faced and how ethnic discrimination and differentiated exploitation uh, in the production process and social treatment outside work were wholly enmeshed within each other. We use the term conjugated oppression to express how multiple axes of oppression based on social relations such as caste and tribe are co-constitutive of and shape class relations. This produces extreme relations of, 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 of oppression and, and exploitation inseparable, in, inseparable from each other in capitalist accumulation. Our research documents that while direct untouchability and, and, and the like is less common now in its old forms, stereotyping and stigmatizing still underpins who can get what jobs. This includes everyday use of abusive language against low castes and tribes, and the views among government officials and wealthy urban upper castes that Adivasis and Dalits are ignorant, lazy, dishonest, dirty, and ill-educated. <coughs> This is widespread across India, and we document many examples of this. We also show how, in the textiles and garment factories in Tamil Nadu, entire communities of, of Dalits hide their surnames and caste background for years, including from their non-Dalit co-workers, to get work and to stay in work. They are stigmatized into this most extreme self-denial. De the conjugated oppression of Adivasis and Dalits includes other processes beyond the workplace. Adivasis and Dalits continue to be othered. In many instances, they are the non-humans of India, the ones who can be discriminated against, the ones with no rights, and the ones against whom atrocities can be committed with near impunity. Atrocities against Dalits and Adivasis are nothing new, but it is well document, documented that the intensity of them in the last decades has increased. The Adivasis in central and eastern India have been stigmatized to an extreme degree as the dangerous classes supposedly all actively supporting the Naxalite revolutionary struggle. As Alpa has shown, uh, labeled as terrorist supporters, they have been subjected to brutal vigilante and police action. Whole villages have been burned and their populations displaced, women raped and thousands arrested, tortured and, and killed under the guise of the civilizing mission of development. In recent years, Dalits and their organic intellectuals across the country have been increasingly target, targeted as anti-nationals, that is, disloyal to the nation, uh, with what that entails of threats of pr prisons and extrajudicial killings. At the same time, extreme religious motives are revived to entice mobs to target Muslims, Dalits, and Adivasis under the pretext of punishing beef-eating. And everyday violence of the most brutal forms persists, including murder and rape. Last year's event in um, Una in Gujarat, where Dalits were systematically beaten for half an hour with iron pipes by a group of so-called cow vigilantes that passed by, is a case in point. The specific case here can be viewed on a video clip at the exhibition at the atrium here, uh, which, by the way, was also um, uh, it, it was curated by Simon, but also by Alpa. Um, 
a clip that those who beat up the Dalits themselves uploaded on YouTube. They were proud of what they had done. The dominant classes in society still views the life, lifestyles, and customs of uh, Adivasis and Dalits and Muslims, which we have not been able to deal with in, in this book. There's a different theme, but, but they, they are, in that sense, uh, in a position that, is, that, that certainly have certain parallels. So, <coughs> so they view the lives, lifestyles, and customs of Adivasis and Dalits and Muslims as dirty uh, or, or uncivilized, they decry emancipatory politics from the midst as anti-national and consider them in need of civilizatory education before they can join the nation. What we have, what we have as a result of the conjugated oppression of Adivasis and Dalits is a super-exploitable workforce uh, controlled and enforced by an oppressive civilizing mission that is increasingly being meted out by the police and other state forces in collusion with corporate capital. Taking together the inherited inequalities of power, the harsh, harsh exploitation of migrant labor, and the underlying relations of conjugated oppression means that oppression and stigmatization based on caste and tribe are very much alive and continue to entrench Dalits and Adivasis at the bottom of social and economic hierarchies. And I'll stop here and hand over to, to Alpa again. So amidst this very bleak situation, I'll only take a few minutes, but I just wanted to say a few kind of concluding points. Um, amidst this very bleak situation of Adivasis and Dalits that we present, it's of course true that the country has for many years also produced high-profile, well-to-do Dalits and Adivasis, from chief ministers to state officials and activists. And there is some evidence of class differentiation within Dalits and Adivasis in our sites. The main processes which are able to cut across those of conjugated oppression are the combination of education combined with affirmative action, which has enabled some degree of upward mobility for a minority of Dalits and some Adivasis. And this has nurtured um, yeah, some, some kind of class differences between, within communities, though most not notably much more for Dalits than Adivasis. But in all of our sites where reserved jobs were acquired, they were in the, most, in the lowest rungs of the state sector, such as home guards, policemen, railway clerks, for instance. Whether this translates into generational mobility is questionable. Where some degree of upward mobility appears to have been reached beyond that provided by affirmative action, as in by Dalit youth of the Kerala tea plantations, it is to work in semi-skilled jobs, which are just as, perhaps even more precarious than the permanent tea workers' jobs their parents had. Also questionable is whether social mobility is experienced universally across households. In most, most, of, us, most of our sites, except for the Himalayas, both low-caste men and women did paid work. So this is contrary to the recent economic data that suggests that Dalits and Adivasi women are being withdrawn from the workforce. It's also contrary to the fine work <coughs> on capitalism and gender re relations spearheaded by Silvia Federici and others who use a very Eurocentric model of the transition from feudalism to capitalism to argue that at its crooks lay a war against women and the rise of the patriarchy of the wage which turned women into housewives and violently repressed those that didn't conform into witches. In many cases, both men and women migrate, but where women stay back, as with Dalit women in the tea plantations, it is they who are keeping the household secure through the jobs they had on the tea plantations. 
And where there is upward mobility among low-caste families, as Karen Kapadia and Clarinda still have highlighted for Dalit households, it can indeed come at some cost and often results in less equal gender relations as women are increasingly taken out of paid outside work and restricted to domestic work in the households. So it, release, it, it, it in, increases inequalities within households. However, the indication from the case studies of the, all our sites is that most will not succeed in becoming up, upwardly mobile. The neoliberal cutback and informalization trends of the last 20 years have shrunk the government sector and frozen private sector formal blue-collar jobs and have made the existing mobility routes even more unlikely. So what is to be done? I mean, we focus on... Um, a lot of the struggles from below, the fight back against these <coughs> forms of inequalities, and I don't have time to dwell into, into them here, um, but everywhere we have found Adivasis and Dalits resisting their treatment and these conditions, whether it's resistance against the Narmada Dam by the Bila Adivasis whose lands were submerged, or whether it's the strike by Dalit women tea plantation workers in Kerala against their working, worsening pay and conditions, or whether it's the strike of the Dalit laborers in the gelatine factory in Tamil Nadu for the rights to organize, the struggle for better housing and clean drinking water in, in the Telangana area, and so on. Adivasis joining the Naxalite struggle is, of course, another case in point, as are political Dalit movements and parties. But we also caution against an overly optimistic reading of the struggles from below, for in most cases there are rearguard actions against increasing oppression and are generally not met with success but with increased oppression and counter-tactics. For what they all have in common is that they are up against strong adversaries and very often also police or vigilante brutality. So there is currently no magic bullet for the Adivasis or Dalits of India. So thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I feel very inadequate uh, to be the commentator uh, because I never, I never um, worked in India. And um, reading the book, I, I was, it, I'm, I'm such a naive reader in a sense. It was like, how did I not know about this? My gosh, what, what, why did I not work in India? What, uh, and so I wanted to talk about... Um, what the, how the book speaks to, um, to the rest of anthropology, the rest of, of, of the world in some sense, and, the, and also to how capitalism works and how identity politics, racism, and um, discrimination around sub subjectivity formations articulates with, with, with social class um, and, and, and gets energized by it. So... Um, so I, in, in that sense, I started by, by reading the book as, as, an, extra, an, as an extraordinary human rights document, uh, capturing uh, an extraordinarily um, brutal moment in, in, in global history, um, in, in Indian history, but, but uh, a moment that's, um, that, 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 that's taking place um, in, in different ways all over the world. And um, in that sense... Um, the the um, when when I f the the the, the con one of the concepts that's used in the book conjugated oppression was a concept that that I 
proposed in the mid in the early 1980s in um, in, uh, in uh, at the time I was in in um, in on the border between Costa Rica and Panama on a United Fruit Company plantation, um, and I was tr- I was trying to understand uh, um, how. How it was how how this extraordinarily racist formation that I was seeing on a on a on a United Fruit Company plantation had 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 been formed historically by this U- U.S. corporation Chiquita Brands, <coughs> the, the 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 bananas that we eat. Um, the United Fruit Company was it was its original name, and um, and I thought. Uh, so it was in that process, in, on, on a plantation, you see that process um, extraordinarily clearly because it's, it's a very exaggerated setting where you get hierarchized, a hierarchized labor force, niches in the labor force, and you can actually get all the figures for how much each person gets paid in, in, in each section of the labor, for, labor force. You can look at how much occupational ill health they're, they're, they're exposed to and all those, and, and then you see how that um, interfaces with, um, with, with the um, labor movements that are inevitably demanding and, and asking for better conditions, and that in the plantation uh, case we're, we're, we're getting um, very easily beaten down by the United Fruit Company simply by doing exactly what, 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 what this book is talking about, by creating paths of circular migration that were specifically bringing in distinct ethnic ethnic groups um, to break labor force, forces that had started to become resistant on the plantation. And, um, and, and it, it, the, what was amazing me in Central America was that the unions, it was, it was an extraordinarily optimistic and, and exciting moment. It was, it was the moment of, 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 uh, of populist socialist revolutions in Central America. The, the Sandinistas had just come to power uh, in Nicaragua, overthrowing a, a 43-year-old, uh, 43-year-long family dictatorship, the Somoza dictatorship. And there, were, there was um, a revolution taking place in El Salvador and a revolution taking place in, in Guatemala. Um, the, the Guatemalan one was the, the majority of the fighters were indigenous Maya fighters. And so um, what 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 um, what 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 I kept seeing in that process was the failure of these revolutionary groups to be able to understand the centrality of the experience of racism uh, by the um, indigenous minorities and ethnic minorities in their countries, and they were wonderful at identifying. Uh, their primary enemy, which is very straightforward in, in, in some sense, it was, it was my country, the United States, which is, you know, which has been treating Latin America as its, as its, um, as its, um, uh, as its, ba- not, not, not its backyard, but its, its reservoir of resources. Um, and, and, um, and so repeatedly, um, they, um, they were subordinating um, a very linear, um, Marxist, populist, nationalist discourse of anti-imperialism 
to um, they, they, they were, they, they were um, no, mobilizing that discourse and, and, and subordinating uh, the demands for, um, for, any, uh, for, 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 um, um, for ethnic dignity, um, um, for gender dignity, for, um, for, for any forms of identitarian dignity. Um, and, um, and, and, it, and it led to, um, in, 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 um, in, on the plantation, very, very concretely, to, to the union being completely defeated, uh, and be, and 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 um, so it was. Um, it was that was that that extreme setting. Um, I, I, um, I recognize it as extreme, but but I, I propose that then this is something that we need to take to look at our larger societies because it's clear how it operates on the plantation almost. Too clear. It's it, it works too beautiful, too too grotesquely, um, and and you can actually measure it um, in terms of who dies earlier, who who uh, who um, you know what what the size of their house is, how many people live in the house, um, how many hours they work each day, how much they sweat, um, and um, and um, and that's taking place. I think, uh, in all our societies, uh, in much more complex, hard-to-see ways and obfuscated ways. And um, what, what's so extraordinary about this book is that India is, uh, is really a perfect site for us to be able to understand these processes much more clearly, and not, not just about um, uh, the, the, the interface with, with, with racism um, uh, identity politics and 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 class oppression, but um, but also the processes of of, uh, of of economic development leading to the accentuation and and prolongation and dynamism of of, of these inequalities, and, uh, and even when it's done by a state that's doing it in the name of helping the poor, in the name of introducing development projects um, that are to benefit the poor, that then creates repeatedly, in each case, these land grabs um, uh, um, and, and displacements, um, in, in India's case, especially of Adivasi populations. Um, and and, and, um, and so, so in that sense, um, India is a, uh, is a perfect place for looking at this, that we can start to understand um, our own countries uh, um, and 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 uh, the, the the confusions that we have about why different sectors of the population um, um, organize in ways that are against their economic interests or in favor of their economic interests, um, and 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 what interests them and moves them um, emotionally, and how they form um, alliances and and get mobilized by different political parties, and so um, so. In what 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 um, what I what 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 I found particularly interesting was the relationship, between, and this is this is someone who's only worked in the Americas, so I, I forgive all of you. Uh, forgive me, all of you who, <laughs> for who um, all of this was complete common sense. But but I found how the book 
um, examine the, connect the connection between Adivasis and, and the, uh, the experience of Adivasis and the, 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 uh, the racism against Adivasis, the dispossession of Adivasis, um, and their integration into the labor force in, these, in, these, um, in, in, in the absolute lowest rungs with the discrimination against, um, against Dalits, against caste. And, um, and, and that, are, that, that relationship between, uh, um, um, bet between um, indigenous populations and, and, and other populations that are seen as al already sort of integrated into the state as, as, as not autonomous populations. Um, and um, so, so uh, the, 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 and so in that sense, the Indian case then lets us um, um, understand much better all the forgotten tribal peoples of the world um, that um, that are that have been in, you know whether it be um, whatever the Irish um, uh, and um, and 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 allows us to see it more clearly um, how it, how how it's transformed and persisted and and then takes on gets re-energized by by one's incorporation into the labor force um, uh, to uh, to continue. Um, to continue, um, um, you know, or, or organizing accumulation, and it's it's uh, specifically that that um, that 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 question of accumulation of accumulation that the book brings up, which is this this mystery of economic development constantly being the thing that actually is the poison. Um, that's um, that's that's uh, prolonging um, uh, social inequality. That's expropriating land from 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 people that that formerly had it in in subsistence or semi-subsistence relationships, um, and and um, and um, so that um, that I I I think of this as as um, as a as a new moment. Um, in 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 the history of of the development of capitalism, um, the, 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 uh, which which I, which I would say, um, s, s, you know, s, um, s started emerging as an identifiable moment in, in in 1980 more or less with with Thatcher and Reagan coming to power, <laughs> and that 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 institution of, of that institutionalization of of, uh, of self consciously neoliberal policies, um, and. Um, and, uh, and I remember uh, now, sort of pathetically, not understanding that moment, thinking it was sort of an accident that, by mistake, this this idiotic movie actor had gotten elected in the United States, and people would see what a fool and a buffoon he was, um, and and that was the last of it. That was the end of it, and then it would the pendulum would swing would swing back to the to to, to sort of uh, the, the 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 normal centrist. Um, Future, which at that time, uh, you know, the, when you were, if you were leftist in the United States, you thought it was like, oh, it's okay, I'll be able to die happy. We'll we'll be able to have a government as good as Canada's. Um, and and um, and what's so extraordinary is that, of course, the exact reverse happened. Um, it 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 created uh, an acceleration of the processes of globalization that had already, you know, been taking place forever in some sense, but that got themselves um, uh, 
you know, that led to deindustrialization, that led to the, to a, uh, uh, the, the rise of multi, multinational corporations and finance capital in a, in a specifically predatory mode of very scientifically and systematically figuring out where they can pay the lowest wages, uh, where bribes are the cheapest to government officials, where the environment um, can be destroyed um, without any consequences, um, and, 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 and then just moving on to the next country as soon as they encounter resistance in, in, in each one of the countries. So, um, so that, that, that moment, I think, um, is a moment that, that ha- has gotten much worse. And I, I wanted to call your attention to the, to the sort of the place that I think has um, sort of led that moment in some sense. I mean, we know that, that Thatcher was actually the, the real one of neoliberalization. Um, Reagan was a true moron. She was just, you know, uh, um, a smart witch. But um, the, the, the um, incredible um, thing in the United States is that for the last 10 years, we've had this, this thing that's never happened before, um, uh, a pretty much consistent decline in our standard of living. And, and, and this book is, is, is extraordinary in the way that each chapter um, tells you what the, what, the, what the life expectancy is. Um, and, and, and so the, de- the, the decline is in our life expectancy. Sorry, not standard of living. Something very, very objective, just how soon we die after we're born. Um, so it's a very nice, you know, non-subjective measure. Um, it, it's, not, it's precisely not standard of living. It's like how long you live since we all, um, you know, stupidly want to live as long as we possibly can. Um, but... Uh, but um, the I shouldn't say stupidly actually. It's just, but but um, the um, so so that 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 the, so that's the, that's um, unheard of for a wealthy country to have this declining standard of living, except for maybe a blip like when the when when a, when a new epidemic hits like HIV uh, or the opioid epidemic, and it sh- and it should just be a blip, an opioid overdose epidemic in the United States. But in the United States, it's been declining, and the rest of of. Um, of of the of of uh, of sort of the equivalent you know uh, wealthy countries of the world have kept on merrily having these declining um, um, uh, death rates. So you, so you you're still you know you're still doing uh, doing okay. But the United States, which was leading this process of of accelerated globalization and predatory accumulation, I'd argue, um, uh, has 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 had this extraordinarily negative outcome of uh, of of a shorter um, a, a shorter life expectancy, um, and 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 I think in that sense, this moment in history that this book um, is capturing um, alerts us to um, to to what's happening, and and if we keep standing by and watching it, what is what is going to continue happening, which is this this transition to uh, to a form of of, uh, of, um, of 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 capitalist development that um, that um, isn't just um, um, failing to trickle down, but is actually um, killing people at a younger uh, at a younger era. So that's only taking place right now in the United States. But um, I, I guess whenever I go anywhere, I just urge that country to stop imitating my country. Um, in, 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 ha- in how it's um, seeking to compete in the global market. 
But, um, and I congratulate you for, for, uh, for having much more, um, much more um, institutional structures and popular common senses um, against, um, against uh, these processes of neoliberalism um, that, that, um, that are, shorting, are, are cutting people's lives short. And I want to really thank um, the, 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 the power of this comparative ethnography to be able to show us how this works on the ground uh, in very, very concrete struggles um, and, and brutalities that, that articulate um, racism and class oppression. And, and, um, and the one final positive thing, um, uh, th because there isn't anything positive about this, um, and, but the, the one positive thing is that these same processes uh, of conjugated oppression that are, that are, that are dry, that, that, that make for so much profit, for so much, art, for so much artificially high profit, that isn't a profit of the free market, but is a profit of, you know, a, uh, of, of, of repressive, coercive, and brutal forces that are ideological and, 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 and military and, and, and economic. Um, those same processes create these flash, these flash mobilizations um, and, 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 and lead to, to uh, possibilities of resistance that, that one sees in these ethnographies in each one of the sites um, and, um, and, and that give some kind of a hope that we human beings actually do uh, resist these processes. So thank you very much and thank you for doing such a um, such a such a collective and 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 such an ethnographically rich book that's a, that's that's informing us um, um, on on so many different theoretical levels, whether it be state building, economic development, the nature of capitalism's way of making profits at certain moments in history, and, and how that changes, um, and and that that relationship between um, how between identity formation. Um, economic exploitation and and um, and consciousness, political consciousness formation. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much to um, all three speakers. So now we have 20 minutes left before the end of this, and um, I'd like to open the floor for questions. Um, okay, so gentlemen on the far left. Paul Hudson, I'm not affiliated to any university anymore. I've been retired for about 14 years. First, I'd like to take this opportunity of thanking the first two speakers for organising an absolutely splendid conference. And we also had some excellent talks covering a lot of ground in a very limited time. I was, I was most impressed. So I thank the organisers of this and also the speakers. Um, the question I would like to ask and... Um, it, it's motivated by um, economic reports on the BBC. The standard of economic reporting on the BBC has been awful for years. I think they get most of their ideas from the Institute of Economic Affairs. They don't seem to know of any other. But they mention, in fact, India's growth having been somewhere of the order of 5 to 7% per annum in the last few years. What I would like to know is, are there any estimates of how much of that growth is accounted for um, by increase in population. It should be the growth per capita, not aggregate. This is more most informative. And the second question, and this is uh, arising from two friends of mine in New Delhi. Um, they don't know each other, although I've tried to put them in contact with each other. They tell me about the soaring prices. 
So the rise in um, GT uh, in the gross domestic product of India, I would like to know, apart from the portion of it is attributable to the net increase in population, how much of that is actually going to the rentiers? I think this is quite important, so that we know what's left over for the rest of the population. Going to, we didn't, didn't quite get that. Going to could what? You just, could you just repeat the very last part of your question? Going to the wrong, did you say how much of it is going to the... Uh, to the wrong, oh, sorry. <laughs> to the, how much is going actually to the wrong landlords, the wrong tree, because it's the prices and therefore the rents that have gone up. So a lot of the increase in GDP, I don't know how much, mm. I don't know whether you have an idea of the estimates of how much of this growth per capita has gone to the rentier class. Oh, do you want to take several questions yeah. or take them one by one? Take a few. Okay, so um, there's a gentleman at the back there. The plight of uh, very interesting lectures, uh, the plight of uh, Dalit and Adivasi goes back to 5,000 years in Vedas, if anyone has looked at the Hindu society and the Vedas particularly sanction this division. I wonder whether it is worse than probably slavery in uh, America, you see, where blacks were enslaved. But this goes back to uh, astonishing amount of sanction given by Hindu society on a caste system. And even if you convert yourself from the, as Dr. Ambedkar was the uh, drafting of the Indian Constitution recommended to the Dalit and the Radhivasis to become Buddhist or to Muslim as such. And even if they convert themselves, the difficulty comes, they are still discriminated. I wonder whether the panel would <coughs> give a view of this because this really is so endemic in Indian society. In, in Hindu society, anyone now, you see, the, uh, apart from the caste, there is a communalism. At the moment, the uh, Prime Minister of India uh, recommends Hindutva and some sort of uh, sanctions about eating of beef or something like that. I'm just worried about whether it will create a communalism on a grand scale or we might go back to the uh, rioting uh, between Hindu and Muslim. I would like to know the views of the panel. Thank you. Do you, do you want to take those two questions, or do you want to take, take a few more? Okay, so we've got, we've got um, uh, Nyla had a question, and then the guy there. So, Nyla. I have a question, and I don't know if you, if you can answer it. Has the gap between Adivasis and Dalits and the rest of the population widened. Can you not hear me? Okay. Has the gap between Adivasis and Dalits and the rest of the Indian population in terms of, say, life expectancy or poverty levels, has that gone up? Has that widened over the period since liberalization? Okay, thank you. And then I'm going to take one more question, which is the gentleman sitting here on the far left. Could you put your hand up very early on? So, yes, you. 
Um, my name is Gabriel. I'm a master's student at University College London. Um, I'd like to ask the panel um, <coughs> to tell us a bit more about the affirmative actions that have been uh, performed by the government to try to include the Dalit and Adivasi population and uh, why, as, at least to my understanding, why have they failed to achieve a wider, uh, <coughs> a wider share of the population and, and also if we have like, any reasons to be a bit optimistic that in the near future things are going to improve a little bit or, or if the situation is going, it's worsening rather than improving. Thank you. Okay, um, I th could you, can we make a start on answering some of these questions lest they get lost in the list and then we'll see how we get on and then we'll maybe gather up some more. We've got a quarter of an hour left, so. Shall I start with some of these ones and maybe Alba will, will join in. Um, thanks for the questions. Um, uh, uh, population growth in India, uh, I must admit I haven't checked recently, but it's, it, it, it used to be just above 2% per annum. So 7% growth is good growth. It is serious growth. There's no doubt about it. it, it well, th there's dispute of whether the figure is, is, is correct or not, but, but it certainly is, is, is growth taking place. It's just not pro-poor growth in the sense that poor people tend not to benefit much from it. I, I cannot answer the question of... Of, of Rangiers. I can tell you that, that uh, Oxfam's recent uh, po poverty report, poverty inequality report, shows again that, that inequality in India has, has gone up again. So it, it obviously is not pro poor growth. Um, now, um, the, uh, uh, the gap between Dalits and Adivasis <coughs> and the rest of poverty levels since uh, liberalisation has increased. It, it differs slightly in different periods, but, but if we take, say, from 1999 till 2009-10, then it has increased. Poverty is falling less for those groups than for others. It is falling, but less. So, so we're seeing an increasing gap. Um, now, um, <coughs> uh, Hindutva discrimination, yes, it is, I, share, I share many of the concerns. Uh, this present period in India is, 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 seems to be an attempt of, of, of certain groups to, to ally themselves with, uh, with, certain, with wide parts of population against others that then can be, be scapegoated and, and be exploited even more. Um, now, uh, what we try to do in the book is to, is, is, is to say um, um, oppression and exploitation has always been there. What is happening now is that it's changing, that, that under capitalism the existing uh, um, uh, ways that, 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 it was, that, it has, that it has historically been possible to, to oppress people are changing, being brought to new uses and therefore, and, and in that also changing. So, so caste discrimination, social oppression, oppression and exclusion of, of Adivasis is not done the same way as it used to be done. So when people say caste discrimination is less in India today compared to what it was previously, is right at some levels of, of indicators, but in my view not right in other ways because it's changing. Um, Affirmative action, why has it failed? Uh, well, that's a question of, of, of was it ever uh, intended to work fully, but uh, assuming that it was uh, one, one big issue uh, is access to jobs, we, uh, that 
are only, only provided within the government sector, and as the government sector is shrinking, there are simply fewer jobs available. And then on top of that, they're also not being filled. That is the, the question of, of whether it was actually meant to be. But, but therefore, there, there's no, I, have, I, haven't, I have no optimism of, of those systems working the way they are now to improve. That would require an overhaul like extending affirmative action to the private sector. And again, I see no, I see no uh, signs that this is actually going to happen in, in the foreseeable future. I might be wrong, but I, I do not see that with the present. What about Nyla's question? Nyla's question, I, I asked early on that, 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 that it is widening um, the, the, the gap. Can I just... No, not off the top of my head. No, I wouldn't venture there. Albert, do you want to say anything more? I just wanted to add one, one more thing to the question of communism. I mean, one of the reasons for why the situation is so bleak is that actually people at the, at the bottom end are being pitched against each other. Mm -hmm. So what you find really interestingly is when it comes to many of the communal riots, for example, the Gujarat riots, um, it was actually Adivasis that were the foot soldiers for the Hindu right. And Jan Bremen points this out you know, very well in, 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 um, in some of his work. But if, or if you look at Orissa, where you know, scheduled caste um, Hindus are being pitched against converted Christian tribals. So the, the situation of you know, Adivasis versus, or Dalits versus the Hindu right is not such a kind of it's not as simple as that. It's, so the Hindu right is also using, you know, the Dalits and Adivasis as part of their, as part of their movements, as part of their struggles, and against each other. So that's, uh, yeah, okay. just just an addition. Thank you. So um, more questions. Uh, oh gosh, there are quite a few. Um, Shelley, you had, you, I'd like to. Uh, you can ask your question, but 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 also let me just see how many there are. Could you put your hand up? Probably too many, I think. I, sus I fear too many hands for us to get through in 10 minutes. Um, Shelley, over to you, and then we'll pick some more. Quickly, I, I guess the question is about neoliberalism and the extent to which it, precisely because of, of um, the possibility of more uh, uh, mobilization against the system or against what's happening, coupled with our look at, at, at Adivasis as potential labor is always an already potential labor. And the if you look at the other side of the declining need for labor in different sorts of ways, mechanization, artificial intelligence, the transformations in the agrarian sector that doesn't depend mm -hmm. on, on the kind of labor that would be filled. And so there's no, to use bar this phrase, function to capital anymore or need. Is there a moment in marginalization where you just are kicked out? You don't need the mega, mega projects anymore because you don't care enough and there's cutbacks of the, of the so-called welfare state such as it exists. Is there a way that we're dealing with a potential uh, just let people die? I mean, I'm being quite gross, but I see this in the states, quite frankly, right now. And so I imagine that the articulation of it is a possibility in other places as well. I see it in Bangladesh as well. So, yeah. Okay. There was a question here at the back. A lady with the, um, yes, you. I don't know how we're going to get the mics to you, but. Okay. I was wondering, just from a story perspective, how do you see this resistance towards global resistance from the early 20th century? Um, how do you see this, this kind of resistance deferring from the resistance towards what we might call colonial capital? So, um, in terms of the modes of resistance, et cetera, like how was it 
specifically different from what, let's say, like the 1930s salt marches? Or, you know, um, do you see a significant difference between how global capital and colonial capital affect Adivasi and Dalit lives? Thank you. And this question here, the lady on the third row sitting next to Deborah. You? Yes, sir? Yes. representation on any of the results on how it affects Dalits and Adivasis. Ambedkar himself had been a proponent of the idea of empowerment through increased political representation and we know that there are leaders increasingly who come from Dalit backgrounds, obviously not enough and obviously maybe not at local self-government levels but if there is any link between political participation and how it impacts them. Okay, I'm going to take one more question, and then if there is time after all the answers, one more, but um, I, I'm with a lot of apologies for those who I can't. So, um, gentleman there with black scarf around your neck, and then we'll see if there's time. Failing that, I'll have to ask after the event. Hi, uh, I'm curious about your view on Western and um, Western charity organizations and nonprofit organizations in India, and whether their role there is, is effective or whether it actually contributes to inequality and sort of exacerbates the, the um, drastic differences among uh, populations and, and class discrimination. Sorry, very um, broad-ranging questions. Um, I'll, I'll, Shelley, I'll take yours first. Um, it, it's, it's really... Uh, Tanya Lee has this really interesting article on um, surplus populations where she compares India and Indonesia. And um, basically, you know, part, part of the argument is that just let people die, and that's happening in Indonesia, but not in India. And the reason is that there's been this huge history of um, mobilization, activist mobilization, communist party mobilization in India, which wasn't disseminated in the same way as it was in, <coughs> in Indonesia, where the entire communist party was wiped out. So I think that, I mean, one of the things that, you know, we do take <laughs> a hope from is that there are so many people in India working in so many different ways to try and, yeah, hold the state to account, whether it's the kind of struggle uh, for Narega and keeping that uh, alive, which is what um, Tanya Lee talks about in that paper, uh, or um, whether it's these various other forms of struggles that we see emerging across um, from Dalits and Adivasi communities that we document in the book. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your your question, but um, the the question about the forms of resistance and whether they've changed in Adivasi areas from the time of colonial, the the struggles against colonial capitalism and those that are taking place now, I think that's a really, really interesting question. Um, There were quite a lot of anti-colonial Adivasi rebellions, and what was really interesting about them is that they took, uh, some of them took a millenarian form, and they were also led by, leaders who um, yeah who had this kind of divine incarnation uh, who had who had converted who had become like um, who stopped drinking eating meat and drinking um, drinking alcohol and who were kind of divine divine leaders uh, and if this kind of um, divine and millenarian dimension of the struggles the resistance that took place against colonial capital in Adivasi uh, in 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 in, say, the 1800s and 
even going into the 1900s, one of the, the Bersa movement being one of the most famous of these rebellions, which took place in the 1900s, is now that's completely ignored by the new uh, struggles that are taking place against <coughs> land and dispossession, which are framed much more in terms of an identity politics of you know indigenous people versus corporate capital. Um, so I think that I, I find that kind of shift uh, very interesting and the kind of not taking the kind of religious or secular dimensions of those struggles of the past, ignoring them in, in the current struggles uh, today. So I'm, I think there's a lot more to be said, actually, about that question, but um, it's just to point, point, point that out. Um, yeah, Jens, do you want to take the other two? Or? Yes, I can, I can do that. Um, let me also just say that uh, if we're looking at the economic data or employment data in India, then uh, it, it, it is quite clear that uh, Dalits and Adivasis are, are much more likely to work as laborers than, um, than other uh, social groups. Other social groups will have a much higher proportion of self-employed, for example. So, so, so this is the core of the labor force we, we're talking about in that sense. Um, that said, there, there, there are new data out for the last two, two years that shows that for the first time, less jobs, uh, or the, 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 the number of jobs in, in, in the economy has actually fallen for the first time. And we're talking informalized jobs. Till, till recently, it was just that it was bad jobs that, that, that was created. For the first time, there's a period here where, where jobs have actually fallen for the last two years. Whether that's a trend or whether that's just a blip, we don't know. But so, so, so there are, well, the, the, it's, it's not the case that, that people are just being let, let to die now. Not yet, but who, who knows? Who knows about the future? That is, but, it's a, but, but now, um, the political repre representations of Dalits and Adivasis, well, it, 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 so much in India has changed since independence in so many ways, both the economy and, and politically. And, and we talk, if we're talking about voice, there's no doubt that, that most groups, in spite of, of, of what we've talked about, also have uh, at least <coughs> feel that they have the right to have a voice. Whether they have it or not is, 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 is a different issue. But across India, in most states, Dalits have, have, have been mobilized also for their political re representation. In, in some states, they have had imp that has had some in, in, impact, in, in others less. Adivas is less on that. Maybe, maybe Alpo will... will, will We'll talk about that. So, so, it's, so yes, one can say it, it has had an impact. It has, it has not changed the fact that Dalits are always at, at the bottom of, of the social and economic hierarchies. Uh, but, it, but it has meant that maybe on issues as, as voice and as, uh, as, as feeling that they have rights and sometimes they do have some rights, uh, things, things have changed in, in that period. Um, Western Charities Organization in India, well, I, I've... I, I'm not aware of, of a general critique of charities that they make things worse. There are, it depends on what sort of charities that we talk about and what areas there are. Maybe wildlife charities that, 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 that prioritize wildlife over humans and so on. But, but in general, I, I, would, I would not go that far. The question is then how much they help. And that will again be, you have to look at the individual charities. So I can't be more specific than that. Sorry. Mm. 
I, I, just in, in terms of the, the surplus population, that's definitely what I'm thinking of to try to explain to myself how the, sta- how the life expectancy in my country uh, for, for poor whites could be dropping so, so, uh, so consistently for so long. Um, and it does certainly feel that that is what's in the future, um, uh, uh, given the inability of, of the global economy to absorb people as productive laborers. Um, the, the opioid epidemic is is, uh, is in the U.S. where we have this. I'm sure you've seen it in the press. We have this extraordinary death rate now from overdoses, so that more people die each year than the entire number of Americans who died during all the years of the Vietnam War. So each year now, for the past three years, uh, that many people are dying. Um, it is uh, it is is and and and. Um, uh, in 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 Latin America specifically, you have extraordinary rises in in murder rates taking place, basically because they're, they, 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 the the um, the surplus populations there are being harnessed into being traffickers for the extraordinarily profitable drug trade that then creates more death in my country. Okay, thank you so much. We are unfortunately out of time, so I apologise if you didn't get to ask a question. Please join us for a drink in the atrium and ask our, our participants the questions there. Thank you very much, and thank you to the panel.